0: Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary, Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include cultural shifts in the mortgage industry, my interview with community home lenders of America, Executive Director Scott Olson on mortgage advocacy, and the bond market's reaction to an outtick in unemployment. I'd like to thank today's podcast sponsor, Candor. with Candor's machine as an underwriter, Lenders are modernizing their manufacturing infrastructure, making them immune to margin, capacity, and staffing challenges forever. Now that we have passed the unofficial end of summer, am I allowed or not allowed to wear white on Zoom calls before 2023's Memorial Day? In truth, maybe darker-hued clothing better suits the current mortgage landscape. Labor Day became an official holiday in 1894 and was quickly followed by the subjective rule that if you didn't have the money to take fall and winter vacations, you should refrain from wearing white. But no one in 2022 should feel the need to follow it. Culture is always changing, and understanding that will help mortgage companies with retention. It's a different time than when many of us entered the industry. Heck, the 96-year-old Queen of England stars in TikToks now. Investors are socially conscious in allocating capital, even down to how they support affordable housing and provide access to credit for underserved individuals. Mortgage companies are hoping that changes from Washington, D.C., including the plan to forgive loan debt could help convert American renters to buyers and add more competition in the buyer market. Speaking of developments out of Washington, D.C., I wanted to welcome onto the show Community Home Lenders of America Executive Director Scott Olson to talk about mortgage advocacy. Scott has over 20 years of experience working on Capitol Hill 15 of which he served on the House Financial Services Committee where he held the title of Housing Policy Director. He worked extensively on housing finance issues including GSE reform, FHA legislation, mortgage regulations, and mortgage servicing issues. He also has six years private sector experience as a public finance investment banker and four years experience in commercial real estate finance and investments. The reason I'm having you on today is because CHLA and CMLA just announced a merger, but I, I kind of want to backtrack first and and give our listeners some background here. Can you talk about what the Community Home Lenders Association is, what it does, its its mission, and uh, kind of the the elevator pitch about what people should know?
1: I'd love to. Thanks for having me on. So actually, the Community Home Lenders Association, we've been operating as that for the last 10 years and sort of on a parallel track while we've been doing that, the Community Mortgage Lenders of America has, uh, has been in existence. And, you know, they have similar members to some degree. Um, they've had similar issues. Um, and so on certain things, we've worked together uh, work together very constructively um but you know all the way along actually it's going back several years when we'd be together in the same place we'd have cocktail conversations you know maybe we should merge and you know it's a it's a hard thing to do to 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 bring two organizations together i think actually in the last three weeks that we've done this it's gone amazingly smoothly but um, you know we finally decided to, to to bite the bullet and do it. And so, um you know we feel we have you know together now more members, more resources, more staff, and you know, I think we can be even more effective. so that's that's sort of the the short history
0: yeah, and i I guess this will be fantastic for small and mid sized independent mortgage banks that that aren't able to have their own lobbyists in Washington, unlike a lot of these larger uh, larger originators out there. How, what's the response been like, uh, since you've announced the merger?
1: Uh, it's been great. CHLA. I, so I worked on the Hill for, uh, Capitol Hill for 20 years before I did this. Uh, and I was the top housing staffer on the, the democratic side for the house financial services committee. So I had a lot of experience being on the other side in Washington and seeing how people do advocacy and one of the things that, that I was determined to do, and I think our members were were very receptive to, was to sort of not make this a traditional kind of top-down D.C.-based um, association, but a bubble-up from the, from the member-level Democratic group. And so, um, you know, honestly, I found that a little hard because it involved, you know, listening and listening and listening, but basically to try to create a culture in which we didn't try to tell members what the issue should be. We tried to get them to be active, and basically set the agenda, which is the way we've done this. Um, And so for example, uh, I was on the job for two weeks, and we were having a conversation, and they were talking about the SAFE Act, and the problem of people transitioning over from uh, you know, banks to work for to non-banks because the requirements are so much higher. And so I said, well, what do you need? And he said, well, we need transit. We need some sort of transitional legislation. So, well, that's the one thing I know better than anything else is how a right legislation. So drafted a bill, got uh, Spencer Bacchus, who is the author of the SAFE Act, um, to introduce it and worked it. But, you know, that's the way Washington worked. It took like five years to get enacted into law. But, But again, this was this was something that the members said was a priority. So that's what we acted on. And so we've always had that kind of ethos, which is, you know, we've had members that, that joined and in six months, they were like leading an initiative because it was something important to them. And, you know, every, 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 the best issues are problems that needed to be solved in the real world. So that's, that's kind of the culture that, you know, we've tried to create and I continue to see that being the sort of hallmark of of how we do business
0: there are a couple advocacy groups for mortgage banks in washington dc what is what what's your niche or what what kind of sets uh what will be this community home lenders of america apart why should, why uh what's what's the uh the angle for for potential members to to join
1: well, i think you nailed it you know that the, the very large financial institutions, whether they be the largest banks or the largest non-bank mortgage lenders, typically have their own lobbyists and advocates in Washington. And, you know, the typical small or even mid mid-sized IMB is not going to have, not going to think it's worth their, their money to go hire, uh, you know, lobbyists, advocates in Washington. And so that's, that's, that's our purpose. That's our goal. And you know, sometimes, um, you know, it really—it's really critical to be there and have a voice. I mean, I give you a good example. About five, six years ago, uh, Congress was p- getting pretty serious about GSE reform. There was a bill, Corker Warner, and it was authorizing. It was giving away new charters that were almost certainly going to go to the large Wall Street banks. They wanted it. They were lobbying for that. They actually got this stuff, you know, moving down the field. And um, so it wasn't just us, it was some other groups. And one of the other groups that was very active on this and very effective too was CMLA. And so we testified at a congressional hearing and there, you know, we built the momentum to oppose you know, creating new GSE charters for Wall Street banks. But there was a clear case where you know, all of our members had a vested interest in a level playing field, and access, clear access to the cash window and, and all the attributes that we've fought for for the last five or six years to make the GSE system, to make Fannie and Fannie, Freddie work for our members and for our non-members that are, that are small and mid-sized lenders. And um, you know that could have gone the other way, honestly.
0: You mentioned Fannie and Freddie there, but I, I want to ask what else the future holds for you, what what are you trying to accomplish, uh, both with this merger and then kind of upcoming uh, advocacy goals?
1: There's just a lot of issues. Um, one thing, for example, we we launched a couple several months ago, um, kind of an arcane in some world some worlds, but you know a really critical part of the mortgage you know manufacturing process, which is the you know the software systems that that lenders use. And so uh, as you may have read, you know, ice is going to purchase black Knight, And our members really spoke up and said that this this troubled them greatly that they were seeing this, uh, you know, almost a quasi monopoly in this sector of the market. And they and they felt that that made, you know, that makes the our, our, our members more and more vulnerable to monopoly pricing or to this thing that's happening where they charge click fees. So we launched a letter, we got an amazing press coverage, we, you know, chatted with the FTC and the CFPB, and we hope and believe we're having an impact on that, uh, on that issue. Um, and, that, and that's a good one of those bubble up issues where, um, you know, when I first read about it in the, pay, in, the in the publications, like, I don't know, you know, it didn't mean anything to me, but it meant a lot to our members. We've been fighting for many years, uh, like on, uh, on FHA to try to F- make FHA a stronger program. Uh, you know, like s- seven years ago, I, I think a-, a fair reading of what happened was that CHLA was the-, the strongest advocate for a premium cut. And we finally got that through. Right. We've been pushing for another one since then, but we were effective on that. Um, on the GSEs, a raft of things where we we teamed up with a lot of other groups in town, consumer groups and small lending groups, to win a lot of a lot of important victories. Uh, one of them, which was to get and yeah, put made permanently into the PSPAs a requirement for fee parity. Um, and I mentioned the charter issues. And then last year, you know, you had these. PSPA restrictions on loans. And we were, I think, I think if you look at the record, CHLA was the the loudest and the strongest and the earliest pushing back against them. And fortunately, what seven, eight months later, they were lifted. So, you know, our, our members originate in service, originate FHA loans, originate VA loans, Fannie Freddie loans. We have a, a lot of uh, members or issuers of Ginny May. These programs are really important, and so we're fighting uh, across the board on those issues for, um, you know, usually for more access to credit and you know more flexibility, and and usually to make sure that the the, the industry giants don't gain a, an unfair competitive advantage against the, the majority of the majority of players out there, which are like our members. I'm wondering
0: what else is going on out there. What are you seeing from your perspective? What are potential concerns for your members that that uh, you know you're going to take to the hill here coming up?
1: You mean in addition to like Black Knight? Yes, in addition. Yeah, yeah. So I think one of the issues is, and, and you know, this doesn't sound great because you know, the, you know, the, it it may sound defensive, but it's very important, which is. We've had over the last 10, actually, since CHLA came into existence, just a remarkable transformation of the market from a a world in which, uh, you know, banks did about uh, half of the FHA loans and did about 85 percent of of uh, Ginnie Mae issuance. And in just 10 years, that's just turned on its head and IMBs have become, you know, a dominant player. Uh, going, you know, they now do 90% of FHA loans, pretty close to 90% of, of Ginny, Ginny May issuance, 90% of VA lending. And so uh, these programs are really important. And they're, they're important because, particularly like Ginny May, it's become very democratized. There's hundreds of issuers, and that's a lot of our members. And it's important for consumers, as well as our lenders, to have a, a broad market. So we're always sort of on the lookout. You know, we were we're, we're concerned about these new risk-based capital rules that uh, Ginny May has pulled out. I mean, you know, some of the things that Ginny and Fanny were proposing were um, you know, more draconian and we're, you know, at least appreciate that we've we pushed hard to 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 get them rolled back and they they're not as bad. But, you know, we're questioning the need for um, you know, we're we're questioning whether what they're just gonna end up doing is is working against themselves because if they if they ramp up the financial requirements and it, you know, you're know you going to push out a lot of smaller and mid-sized issuers in the Ginnie Mae market, and you're actually going to have more concentration in the handful, you know, the top five or 10 large mega issuers, servicers, you're going to have more systemic risk. You're going to, I think, have more financial risk. And so we're making the case, um, and this is a really important issue to us, that there's a public interest, and of course an interest for our members, but particularly for consumers, in having a broad base of you know Ginny Mae issuers out there uh, for more competition. And and that doesn't happen by itself. It happens, you know, by continuing to be strong and advocating that the that the rules and and the way the system works is is fair and, and level, and it isn't just sort of squeeze out anyone that's not one of these you know too big to fail institutions
0: you're a seasoned veteran on the hill and in washington dc can you give some background to our listeners on how advocacy works and and what makes it effective and how you go about doing it and kind of yeah you know, take us inside the sausage factory if you will
1: so it's been more than a decade but i still remember sort of painfully how advocacy doesn't work <laughs> People would come in and they'd say, this is what I want. And I would I would be like, why would I care what you want? (laughs) And people would come in and advocate for things without giving any thought to what my boss, who was alternatively the chairman of the ranking member of the committee, wanted. And so, you know, advocacy lobbying is an art and what you have to do. Is figure out where they're coming from and find out what how you can appeal to them on what grounds. So for example, you know, there's a lot of issues, and I think I've mentioned some of them, where we believe that consumers and our members are completely aligned, you know, more competition, more players in the market, and so on. So if you have a, a, a very progressive Democrat in Congress, um, you're not going to probably get as much sympathy just by coming in and saying, my members are hurt by this. You need to do something about it because they're saying, well, you know, you're a, you're probably ma- your members are probably making money. Why should I care that much? You know, you have to explain why it is that protecting a broad market of, of IMBs, for example, is good for consumers. And, and to, that's the skill of lobbying. You have to figure out how you can take your issue and find a way to appeal to whoever it is you're, you're lobbying at the time and you know i think it takes um you know i think i think it takes some skill let's close with this
0: for those imbs out there that aren't currently members and are interested in more information or, or joining forces with you what are what are the best next steps for them
1: well, just uh, give me a call or just send me an email, uh, Scott Olson two T's O L S O N Scott Olson at communitylender dot org, um, and be happy to chat. Or just you look up our website for what's now as I, as you said the Community uh, Home Lenders of America. We'd love to chat with you. And the reason I would I'll give you two reasons why why we're encouraging people to join us. One, like I said, I can give you many examples. Individual members that had an issue that basically asked us to take a look at it and it became one of our initiatives. And in a lot of cases, we succeed. It, it's a real opportunity not just to be frustrated that Washington seems like a close off place, but that you can really have some sort of voice and impact. And the second thing is that, you know, on our calls all the time, people are discussing challenges and, you know, how are you dealing with it? You know, we're trying to figure out how to deal with this loss mitigation problem or how did you, you know, who are you trying to deal with, try to get, you know, find and find new aggregators or whatever, that, that it's a good, it's a forum where you can exchange ideas and talk about challenges you face. Awesome. Scott,
0: I appreciate you making the time for me today. And uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for
1: the opportunity.
0: We saw mortgage rates decline before the long weekend due to the idea that a softer employment report for August than July could compel the Fed to take a less aggressive rate hike path at its September 20th and 21st FOMC meeting. The economy added 315,000 jobs in August, a touch above the 293,000 consensus number, but a big decrease from the 526,000 that were reported in July. The unemployment rate ticked up 0.2% to 3.7% showing the Fed may finally be getting some traction and slowing down the economy as it weighs another expected interest rate hike. The strong job market should continue to support housing demand as household incomes continue to grow. The labor force participation rate increased to its highest level over the last two years as more people returned to work. Perceptions of the job market were mixed, with 48% of consumers saying jobs were plentiful and 11.4% responding that jobs were difficult to get despite 11.2 million job openings. For the moment, the labor market remains strong despite higher interest rates. Meanwhile, housing continues to cool as higher mortgage rates and rapid home price appreciation over the last year have eroded affordability. As a result, homebuilders have pulled back on new projects with new single-family home construction falling 4% in July. Market expectations continue to lean toward another 75 base point rate hike when the Fed meets later this month, and there was nothing in last week's data to significantly shift that sediment. After the U.S. markets were closed for the Labor Day holiday yesterday, today sees some manufacturing readings in the form of final August IHS Market Services PMI and the August ISM Non-Manufacturing Index, both due out later this morning. It's a relatively quiet holiday-shortened week, with tomorrow bringing the latest beige book from the Fed, Thursday seeing the usual jobless claims, and July wholesale inventories due out on Friday. There is a sprinkling of Fed speakers, including Chair Powell, and the latest ECB decision on Thursday. In regard to MBS, the desk is scheduled to purchase up to $1.264 billion over today to Thursday, including $756 million UMBS 34% through 5% today. August agency prepayments will be released after tomorrow's close, with Class A 48 hours on Monday, September 12th. We begin Tuesday with agency MBS prices worse a quarter, and the tenure yielding 3.25 after closing Friday at 3.20%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping you think gas and electricity prices are bad? Have you seen chimneys? They're through the roof. (laughs) Thanks again to today's podcast sponsor, Candor. With Candor's machine as an underwriter, lenders modernize their manufacturing infrastructure, making them immune to margin, capacity, and staffing challenges forever.